You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Do you ever play this game with someone where you have something that they want, candy or something, and They ask you for it, but you pretend like you can't hear them. Uh, You know, like uh, maybe I'm in the front seat and we've stopped at a gas station. We're driving somewhere and I got a box of Mike and Ikes and I've got like five of them left. And Joel wants a Mike and Ike. Hey, Dad, can I have Mike and Ike? Ike, What? I can't hear what you're saying. You know, you know, for more. What? I can't. I got my mouth's full of Mike and Ikes. I can't quite hear what you're saying. And uh, can I? Then he falls. I'm sorry. They're all gone. You know, you play a little game of where. Yeah, I, I couldn't really hear you, but even though you really kind of could. What? I can't understand you. Uh, and I've got to finish this handful of Mike and Ike's. We've all done this, right? You know, you, you play this game with people. Well, what does that have to do with this passage? Nothing. Nothing. I, I, I share it with you for this reason. It has something to do with how we respond to a passage like this. Undoubtedly, there are places in our Bibles that are hard to kind of understand. I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, and I say it that way because it's fun to say perspicuity. It just means clarity. I believe in the clarity of Scripture, that God has spoken not in code, um, not so that you have to have a big uh, hieroglyphic you know, outline to figure out what God is saying. God spoke in common language, Koine Greek, through the writers, through uh, chosen men who are appointed by God, inspired by God to write these things down that we might know what God's will is for us. So I believe in the clarity of Scripture. But we all know those times you come to a passage and you're kind of like, I'm not entirely sure what that means. I'm going to have to consult someone who maybe knows more than I do or get a dictionary out or maybe have a study Bible to kind of understand what this passage is. That, that happens. You know, Scripture is clear, but it isn't equally clear. Some places you got to look at what does the Bible said here so we can interpret what the Bible says here. So that does happen. In some places, it takes some work to figure out what's going on in the Bible. That being said, this morning, this is not one of those passages. 
It's not one of those passages. Sometimes the problem isn't that we can't understand what's being said. It's that we don't want to understand what's being said. Sometimes the question, can I have a Mike and Ike, is so clearly heard in my ear, but I don't want to share my Mike and Ikes, so I pretend like, oh, I don't, know what you're, I don't even know what you're saying. And we do that with the Bible sometimes. And we say the problem is, well, it's just the Bible's kind of hard to understand in some spots. Well, yes, maybe so. But the Bible's also really easy to understand in some spots. And the reason why we don't want to hear it is because we just don't want to hear it. We want to hear what it's saying. Like a dad pretending he can't understand his kids as he's trying to finish off the candy before they can get to it. <laughs> there are times when what the Bible says isn't really hard to understand at all, but it's very challenging when you admit that and when you understand it. There's nothing hidden to try to reveal to you this morning. This text just explains itself, really. But the message is severe. The big idea is this. You have died to the things of this world, so put them to death. You have died to the things of this world, therefore, so then, put them to death. Paul has been speaking all through this book on the implications of the gospel. And he says things like, we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son of, of his beloved son. Chapter one, verse 13, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light. And he says, you once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You were here and now you have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But Christ in his body through his death on the cross has now transferred you into the kingdom of the son of his love. He's reconciled you by his body of flesh by his death. There's this transfer that has happened. That when you are a Christian, this is language Paul has given you. You've gone, as we talked about last week, from death to life. God has, Jesus has brought you to life through faith in his work. From death to life. From dark to light. From alienation to reconciliation. He says things like, We have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. That's chapter 2, verse 12. And he says that we who were dead, chapter 2, verse 13, we who were dead, God made alive. A description of the timeline of a Christian is one who has died with Christ and one who has also then been raised with him. So then what do we do? What ought we to do as a result of this incredible work of God in our lives, taking us from death to life, taking us from alienation to reconciliation, taking us from darkness to light. What should we do? Well, last week we talked about the positive end of what we should do. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Seek the things that are above for you are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, will appear, you will appear with him in glory. That's the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 that we worked on last week. That was the positive end. This week we look at the negative end. We ought to put to death whatever is earthly among us. There is this ongoing necessary struggle with our sin nature. 
Are we dead or do we need to put to death? Bible speaks about both, speaks of this in both ways. It says that sin has lost its power over you. You're not underneath the domain of sin. You're not underneath the power of sin. God has liberated you from sin. You have, you are not dead anymore. You've been brought to life. And yet the Bible still speaks in the ways of you need to put sin to death. Sin has lost its power over you. Now you need to refuse its power over you. The life of the Christian is often described in this way. We are in the already, but the not yet. We've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3 tells us. One day we will be raised with Christ. We already are, and we yet will be. The Bible often has this kind of language. Now, one way to think of this is, I'm husband to Darla, uh, my lovely wife sitting back there. I, I am the husband of Darla. I am her husband. And at some point in our history, August 30th, 2003, <laughs> I became her husband, right? I said I do. I mean, we, we, I, I made a covenant. You and you, you and no other, as long as we both shall live. Amen. I became her husband. Now, can, can I then just hang my laurels on well, I, I became Darla's husband. No longer do I need to do anything that is husband-like. You know, it's like, well, and then she complains, well, you never, you know, if you go through the list, if I went and got a house somewhere else and never supported, never was involved with the children, wasn't involved with her, didn't care, was off somewhere else, and she says, you're my husband. Yeah, I, yeah, I was your, yeah, I'm your husband. But that doesn't mean I have to currently be your husband, does it? Well, no, that's ridiculous, isn't it? You, you are and you continue I, I am her husband, and I ought to work to continue to be a husband to her. That there is this, I am already, and yet I still need to husband. I still need to be. And there is this, likewise, we are, we are called to this continuity of existence. We have died to the things of this world, and yet we must put them to death. We must continually put them to death as they rise up in us. Latin term, for those of you who love when I pull out some weird Latin thing, this is from R.C. Sproul, it's not me, but there's a Latin term, I don't think I even put this down on my screens, I should have, but it's a simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. And it's this Latin phrase, if that helps you, good. If it doesn't, forget it. It basically just means that you are simultaneously just just simul justus, J-U-S-T-U-S, simultaneously just, righteous, and peccator, sinner. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. Simul justus et peccator. And it's this idea that there is still within us, though we are righteous in God's sight, though all that you need for your salvation is Christ's work on the cross, he has gone to the cross. He has bore your sins in his body on the tree so that through repentance and faith in Christ, you can be forgiven of your sin, made righteous, legally declared righteous in God's sight. Praise God, you've been made righteous. Yet, there is still within us this sinful flesh operating in us and working against us. I like that the Bible doesn't pretend that this doesn't happen because we all know it experientially. We all know it experientially. We all know that this fight in our flesh exists that we, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, 
The very thing I want to do, I end up not doing. The very thing I don't want to do is the thing I end up doing. And there's this wrestle in the Christian heart of I want to go out and please Jesus. And I want to live a life that's glorifying to God. And then I find myself in a situation where some, I failed at some struggle and I've sinned. And the Bible doesn't pretend like this struggle doesn't exist. But it also doesn't pretend like this struggle doesn't exist in the hardest parts of who we are. Our deepest feelings this is one of those situations where God just hits the nail right on the head in this vice list. They're sometimes called vice lists or virtue lists. And this is a vice list. There's 10 things here, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Probably they're all idolatry. Might just be the greed that Paul is referring to there. Or evil desire, I memorized it as, or covetousness, it could be greed. You're wanting somebody else's stuff. But it's all, in one sense, idolatry because you're saying, God, what you want to give me is not what I want. I want my own thing. I want my own God. I want my own. And that is, by definition, idolatry. So we have these five big things that, that Paul, vices that Paul lays out. But then he says, you also must put to death anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I could go through and define these things, but do we really, don't we know? I mean, and if you really struggle with what those things mean, I guess we can sit down and go through what those things mean, but they're kind of, again, this is back to my opening point, we kind of know what those things are. We kind of know what those things are. That word for sexual immorality there at the start is this Greek word porneia, when I was a kid, uh, I thought that uh, the Bible just never really spoke on such topics all that often until I, one of my study Bibles that I got out said, hey, the Greek word for this sexual morality is pornea. And I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe the Bible does speak on these things. And actually, that Greek word there is just a junk drawer term. It's just a catch-all for any sort of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. And by marriage, we mean the age-old, millenniums-old understanding that God established in the Garden of Eden of a man and a woman united for life. That is, in this term, this sexual immorality, this porneia, is talking about any sort of that activity outside of the covenantal biblical understanding of marriage. Now, I know that today we, we that, that, our feelings, um, that the feelings that we have often run, that run contrary to God's will are some of our strongest feelings. We are, we are very caught up in our world today in emotionalism. And that what I feel deeply and passionately, therefore, must be true. And if I feel it strongly, then it is therefore justified. That's, that's, that's a motivism. That is, no, that is not any based in truth. That's just based in subjective, deeply felt, maybe, feelings, but they are subjective feelings. They're actually given the place of identity in a person's life. Yet no matter how deeply felt an inclination may be, that does not generate its rightness. No matter how deeply felt something is, it does not generate its righteousness. Now, if you think, Darren, that's kind of controversial, that actually is not controversial. If you've raised kids or been around kids at all, you know to your kids, no matter how badly you want to smack your sibling, that does not indicate its rightness, does it? 
Who parents like that? I mean, honestly, it does indicate its rightness. Deeply felt does, does not mean that it is righteous. No matter how deeply one feels something, that does not, by uh, the nature of feeling, make it right. No matter how deeply a man may desire another man's wife, it is always going to be adultery. And I don't care if you say, well, but Darren, I really, 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 really desire X, Y, and Z. That doesn't change the truth that that is adultery. It is sin. No matter how badly you may want to end someone's life. Oh, but Darren, I really hate this person. You don't understand. I wake up in the morning and my first thought is, I wish I could end their life. I feel it so strongly. It must be right. It's not right, is it? Hopefully we can agree upon that. That is not right. The murder of another image bearer is sin. And no matter how strongly you feel it, it is sin. Feeling deeply does not produce rightness. It's popular in our world today. Love is love. So just as long as you strongly feel love, it must be okay because love is love. That phrase justifies nothing. It's actually just kind of a nonsense statement. A is A. No kidding. Thank you. But what is love? That's the question. That's the question. Just because you feel deeply something and have some deep desire within you, it does not justify your action. Paul is calling you to put it to death, to kill these things within you. There's seriousness going on here because, in fact, those deep feelings, according to Paul, produce wrath. They produce wrath. It's an interesting turn for Paul because normally the easiest plea, if you want to get someone to cease from their sin, what do you do? You say, well, this isn't beneficial for anyone. Like, this, this hurts people. You say, the reason why you want to cease from sin is because culturally, the culture will benefit by all of us getting along and living by certain norms. And that was, that was a, a, a moral theory Back when Paul was around writing this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that was a moral theory, was the civic. You need to be good people for the sake of the society. And so therefore, don't live this way. Don't engage in these activities. Don't do this because it benefits the society. It benefits our civilization. But Paul doesn't go to that, that direction. He doesn't say people ought to live righteously for the sake of the broader culture. He tells them to put these things to death because they bring about the wrath of God. He's taking it up to the next notch. It isn't just, well, it's not good for you and it's, it, won't, it won't produce your happiness and it doesn't help anyone else. He's saying, put it to death because these things bring about the wrath of God. That ain't Darren saying it. That's, that's our Bible saying these things bring about the wrath of God. God's anger is against these sins and so the admonition is to put them to death death. Do not play nice with sin. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do not pet it like a puppy dog. Do not, do not mess around. Do not see how close you can get to it to see how close to the line you can walk. Be killing sin because if you are not, sin will be killing you. If you're not actively engaged in the mortification of your earthly nature, you better believe your earthly nature has fooled you into thinking it doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, there's nothing to worry about. I must be doing fine. And that earthly nature will work in you the wrath of God, according to Paul. Be putting these things to death. 
if by the Spirit, uh, John Owen wrote this, that section, Be Killing Sinners, Sin Will Be Killing You. He has this book um, on mortification of sin and believers. It's all an exposition just of Romans 8, 13, I think. I didn't look that up. I, I think it's Romans 8, 13. It says that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, who does the killing? You know, we might just think, this is a common phrase, um, if God didn't want me to feel this way, then, then I wouldn't feel this way. I mean, you know, why doesn't he just help me out? If, if, if I feel so deeply, must be God because that's, it's, it's in the core of who I am. Well, according to Paul in Romans 8, who does the killing? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Yes, it is by the Spirit. And yes, we are actively engaged in this operation to put to death what is earthly among you. This is a war. This is a war. Not to... Not in the crazy crusades, the ways, that, the ways that the Christian faith is co-opted today for certain issues. This is a war against your fleshly nature. This is a war against your earthly self, your desires, your feelings, your deeply held ideas and desires and wants and needs. We are called to put them to death. The language there, clear. Kill it. Kill it or it will be killing you. Is that too severe, though? I mean, honestly, okay, Darren. You're one of these radical guys. Just go talk all, the, all these stern language. Well, let's look at Jesus. We got, we got time. Let's look at Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Thankfully, thankfully, when Jesus walked the earth, he wasn't, you know, didn't talk all this hard talk, right? He was, he was just be nice to each other and, um, you know, try to get along and be good to your neighbor and be a peacemaker and all these sorts of things. None of this serious talk. Well, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, very famously quoted, often quoted passage of, of Scripture. But this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard it said... That you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, well, that's, that's taking it up a notch. It's not just commit adultery. It's like don't even look anyone with adultery with a lustful intent. What's the, what's the solution Jesus throws out? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. That's radical. <laughs> For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is Jesus advocating self-mutilation here? No, he is not. He's, but he's communicating with hyperbole a serious point. You could... You could you could be a brain in a box, you'd still commit sin <laughs> with just your thinking. It isn't your eye, it isn't your hand, it is yourself, it is your sin nature. You could pull out both your eyes, cut off both your hands and your feet, and you're still going to be sitting there sinning. So it, it, it isn't resolve the issue, but he's bringing up the severity of the point. No matter how deeply this is felt, no matter how deep these desires go, this sin that is among you, Jesus says, do whatever it takes. To put to death whatever is earthly among you. Take drastic measures to kill the sin in our lives. I'm going to put an acronym up on the board just quickly. This might help you. Um, a pastor, John Piper, uh, created this acronym. 
to help fighting in lust. And it's just, it's anthem. And it's just these six things that whenever sin is crouching at your door, here's, a, here's an acronym to work through. The first thing is just avoid. If there are areas that you know that, that you're prone to go into sinful activity, just avoid them. If the TV is causing you to sin, get rid of your TV. If your phone is causing you to, to sin, if, if you feel convicted over the amount of social media time or how caught up you get, and if, if, if you're watching the news every night and it's causing you to sin and frustrate and worry, get rid of it. Avoid it. Kill. This is what it's going to take. Avoid. Do whatever you can. We're not talking about becoming a legalist. But we are saying take drastic measures to protect yourself from the sin that is around you. Avoid. Say no. The moment that sin opens the door, the moment that it creeps into your mind, even audibly say out loud, no, in Jesus' name, no. I'm not doing this. I'm not going down that road. Turn to Christ. Hold to his promises. Replace it with an affection for who God is, what he has done. There's something better. Enjoy Christ and then move. Get into useful activity. So this just quickly, I commend that acronym to you for your thinking. This can be used to aid in your war against all sorts of sin. But the question that we first must be faced with is that we have to be convinced of our need to fight this war. When you're browsing social media, when you're longing for other circumstances, when you're hunting for various objects to meet and fulfill your need, put what is earthly among you to death. You know, in our consumerism culture, I know that we, we those of you who are online, like me, you, you just browse, we, we browse and browse and browse and browse, browse for products that we don't need that aren't going to help us any, but we're convinced that somewhere out there this thing is going to make life better. Or we browse for other people's lives and we say, boy, I wish I had that life partner or I wish I had that spouse. I wish I had that body. I wish I did that workout so I looked that way. I wish that I had that car. I wish that I had that farm. <laughs> I wish I had that, that airplane. I and mean, we have all these things. I wish I had all of these things. And we're increasing in ourselves. This is all causing us idolatry, greed, covetousness. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We must fight these things. Paul says we are to put off the old self, to put on the new self. We've been set free. We must put off the old self, the earthly ways, put on Christ. But lastly, we must understand the incredible blessing that there is in Christ, enjoying Christ, holding to his promises. Why would we put to death what is earthly among us when we would desire it so greatly? That's what we want to do. Fill it in the deepest part of our bodies. Why? The deepest part of our bones and desires. Why would we put it away when we desire it so greatly? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He loves you too much to let you stay in the ruin of your sin. Why is Paul calling us to put to death what is earthly among us? Because Jesus loves you too much to let you wallow in the filth of your sin, in the ruin of your sin, in the disaster of your sin. He loves you too much to let you stay there. And he's calling us all to rejoice in the new life and in the new family that is in Christ. We're going to get into the body of Christ and the, the nature of the church. But he's saying here that we don't lie to one another. We've put off the old self, put on the new self. But here with Christ, there's not 
Greek or Jew. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. There's no ethnicity. There's no class. There's no status. We're just Jesus's. We're his. And he's with us. And that's far better than any earthly thing we think we could get. To have Jesus and for Jesus to have us is better than to have any of our other desires fulfilled. Rejoice in the new life and the new family that is Christ. In Christ, he is all and is in all. We are liberated in Christ's family, in the church, to put to death what is earthly among us because we no longer need the pleasures of sin for our satisfaction. We have union with God, equality amongst our brothers and sisters, mutual enjoyment of what we have in the king of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we can't put to death what is earthly among us. We don't need those things anymore. Jesus is better. And the church, this community that we have, is far better. Again, the problem is not that we can't understand it, but often our flesh just says it isn't what we want to hear. But this morning, I want you to hear the full message that we all would hear it. Heed Paul's admonition to put these things to death, what is earthly among you, for the joy of what is had in the having of Christ and him alone. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. Each one of us, God, I pray for the conviction of sin. Father, there are areas in all of our lives where we have maybe fooled ourselves or have um, rationalized, justified certain behaviors and attitudes and actions. And God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work of conviction in our hearts, that we would put those things to death, that we would repent, that we would rejoice in the gospel. Christ, those, those sins are sins that Christ died for, that we could be forgiven and made righteous, that we would rejoice in the gospel, and that we would walk out these doors and walk into life with our family and our jobs, with our friends in this world as those set free from death, putting to death the sins that lead to death and living in the joy and righteousness that there is in your son, Jesus Christ. Do this work in our hearts, God, convicting us and causing us to enjoy you for all that you ought to be enjoyed for. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.